Welcome back to another episode of the Borough Shire Podcast. I'm Brandon Vaught, and I'm joined by my best friend, as always, Father Blake Britton. Father Blake, how you doing? Doing really well. It's great to see you and a great topic today. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about the theology of the saints and the theology of sainthood and what it takes to become a saint. Uh, but before we get there, a uh, quick little announcement. So after a bit of discernment, Father Blake and I have decided to back off a little bit on this podcast so that we're going to be releasing each episode one per month instead of one every other week. And in full disclosure, it was mostly me having to back up because I've just become overwhelmed with so many commitments at work and family. So we love doing these podcasts. We're trying to do as many of them as our state and life will allow, but that's going to be the plan moving forward, at least temporarily. We'll see what the Lord does over the next handful of months. So we got this episode today, and then we're going to release it, I think, on the third Wednesday of every month. So there'll still be a nice little routine and pattern to look forward to. Okay, let's talk about the saints. We often hear about uh, how we all have a vocation to be a saint, but maybe we'll start off with a definition, Father Blank. What is a saint? What makes somebody a saint? Yeah, so like you said, there's a lot of times where you hear this kind of conversation. We're all called a sainthood. We all should become saints. But for a lot of people, saints are something that are not necessarily well understood or something that's sort of on the peripheries, you know? So it's like we know that our parish is named after a saint, and we know that the church loves saints, that we canonize saints, but why do we really have saints in the life of the church, and why are they so important? Um, and with all things, and you and I talk about this a lot when we have our discussions at Burrowshire, we can really only understand Christianity through the Incarnation. And what do we mean by that? Christianity is unique because it's not built on ideas, and it's not even built on following a person necessarily, but it's built in a person. It's founded upon a someone who is still alive and in our midst. To be a Christian doesn't mean to follow someone only. It means to be someone, to be alive in someone. So God becomes man and dwells among us, and he opens up the ability for us to share in that divine life through mainly the sacraments of the church. This is why St. Paul, whenever we're baptized, he'll speak about us being baptized into Christ. The Greek that he uses there is really, really powerful. It's ace Christon. It doesn't mean we're just baptized in the name of Jesus, but we're literally inserted into the very life of Christ himself. We're inserted into that life. So to be a Christian means to be Christ in a mystical way. It means to extend and to manifest the life of Jesus. And this is what allows, for example, St. Paul to say that he makes up in his own body what's lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ the Lord. How can he say that? Because in the end, he is Christ in that mystical way. He is sharing in the very life of Jesus. And this is how Jesus also continues to be in our midst through his bride, the church. So a saint is someone who's not just a very, very good person. He or she is not someone who just serves the poor and loves others, although they may do those things. A saint before anything else is someone who actively and consciously participates in the life of Jesus and allows that life of Christ to shine through their own hearts and through their own actions. I think one of the things I came to appreciate about the church's canonization of saints after I converted to Catholicism was that when the church canonizes a saint, it's not an acknowledgement that only these people are the super holiest or only these people are the ones that we're confident are in heaven. There are many, many more saints beyond just those who are canonized, but the church has selected this smaller group of saints to formally recognize, not for their own sakes, but for our sakes, that the yeah. point of the church canonizing saints is to lift them up as exemplars 
for the rest of us. It's a gift to the rest of us. It's not just to, you know, give this person a badge so that they can glory in their own ego. It's to say, no, this person conformed themselves to Christ in such a way that they're worth imitating, that they're worth right. following their pattern. And we have to remember, too, that the church is a mother. And like any good mother, she likes to show off her children. <laughs> and that's why I share people also when we talk about the saints, especially some of our Protestant brethren who sometimes are critical of the saints, seeing that almost as cultish to honor the saints, or even among some evangelical Protestants, they see it as idolatry, as a form of pagan worship. And we don't honor the saints as pagan do many gods, but rather we honor the saints as a mother honors her children who have accomplished something wonderful. We know moms, when they take their children's drawings and put them on the fridge, Kathleen will put up in your house sometimes different art pieces that Gianna or Zelly has made. Sometimes Isaiah or Teresa will make me something and I have them up on my fridge because I'm really proud of the little cards that they make and the poems that they make up for me. This is what parents do for children who have accomplished beautiful things. They hold them up out of pride and out of joy. And this is what the saints are. These are children who have been good, obedient children who have accomplished what God's asked of them. And Mother Church with great joy holds them up and says, you can be one of these children too and to follow them. That's also, by the way, just on a funny side note, one thing that sometimes freaks people out are relics. They're like, this is so strange to have body parts and like a finger or a tooth or, or you know, hair of someone or some sort of saint. But again, mothers will do the same thing when their child loses their first tooth or when they get their first haircut. We take a piece of that child's body and we keep it in our top drawer. I mean, really what you're doing is you have a dead piece of the child's body <laughs> in your top drawer, but why do you have it? It's nothing morbid. It's rather something tangible to say, like, this was a precious moment in my child's life that I want to have forever. And that's the same thing for relics as well. So you're right. This is how the church holds up those examples for us and loves the lives of the saints. You know, again, as a convert, I never really struggled with the relic objection because I realized that the same people who were so upset about Catholics venerating relics would be seen at the Smithsonian Museum venerating <laughs> the hat of Abraham Lincoln or, you know, the bone of this great American hero, or they would go to JFK's grave and pray reverently. And I thought it's the same thing, except the yeah. people we're honoring and venerating have extreme measures of holiness. But otherwise, the, the practice is the same. We celebrate those who have gone before us. Although with us, there's a sense that what we're doing is even more elevated because we don't think that these people are dead. We recognize that yeah. they're still alive in Christ, and therefore we're not just honoring them from a distance. We have a certain communion with them. We can befriend them and get to know them. Um, so that yeah. the relic thing and was this never is what an leads issue. To the communion of the saints, this notion that we as Catholics know that these persons are still alive authentically. We hear this in the funeral liturgy even when I celebrate funeral masses. At the preface before the Eucharistic prayer, the priest says, Lord, you who by your resurrection has made life and death not life that's ended, but rather life that is changed. It's simply life that is changed. So when we celebrate the Holy Mass, all the saints are there with us. When we pray, the saints are in communion with us. And again, it's not that we offer any kind of worship or idolatry to them by any means. And do you have to pray to saints? No, you don't. But why wouldn't you? If these are siblings and they're part of the family of Christ, that's what it means to be incorporated into the church, to be part of the family of God. If that's the case, well, then why wouldn't we talk to our older siblings who have done a wonderful job? You know, I'm the oldest of four kids and there are times when my brothers and my sister will ask me for guidance or ask me for help or say, hey, Blake, I'm really going through a rough time. Can you pray for this or for that? Same kind of thing with saints. 
when I talk to Fulton J. Sheen, when I talk to Blessed Pure Giorgio, when I talk to St. John Vianney, I'm asking older siblings who have gone before me, hey, I need your help. I need your guidance because I'm trying to follow Jesus like you did. There's this great um, C.S. Lewis quote. I can't remember what book it's in, but I've heard it repeated very often that he says, how monotonously alike are all, have all the great conquerors and tyrants been. How gloriously different are the saints. And it speaks mm. to this diverse tapestry of, you know, you mentioned just a handful of names, but even within those names, I'm thinking of Pierre Giorgio and G.K. Chesterton, <laughs> how marvelously different those two men were in temperament and interests and lifestyle, but both of them conformed themselves in their unique way to Christ. And that's yeah. another thing I love about the saints, that there's no one pattern for sainthood. Like Christ works on each one of us in our context, with our temperaments, with our lifestyles. It re recalls that, I think it was the first episode we did, maybe the second one, about becoming saints in our time, that we can look to these different figures for inspiration, but God doesn't want to make a duplicate G.K. Chesterton or a duplicate Pierre Giorgio. He wants to make a St. Blake and a St. Brandon in this time, in this place. God wants to conform each of us to Christ in a unique way. Yeah, we'll get to that when we talk about the steps practically of how to become a saint, but that's what sort of we put down to step number two, if you will, but knowing yourself, your gifts and talents, and recognize that Jesus is calling you to be a saint, you to be a saint. And this is one of the fundamental aspects of sainthood, and this is one of the most admirable qualities of the saints. Here are men and women who were fully themselves, who were so free and joyful in who they were and their unique personality and gifts. And they allowed their holiness to shine through. They didn't become saints in spite of themselves. They became saints through themselves, meaning surrendering entirely to the life of Christ within them through baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist, and allowing Christ to mold, to shape, to form that unique personality to shine through and make this whole spectrum of characters throughout church history, which are quite phenomenal, as you mentioned. You think of someone like St. Catherine of Siena, St. John Vianney, St. Jerome, St. Augustine. These are huge personalities, and they let their personalities very much be felt, especially someone like St. Jerome, who had to carry on a, a rock to beat his chest when he would say cuss words sometimes. You, you have these really funny personalities, but in the end, they all loved Christ, allowed Christ to sanctify the world through them, and that's what makes them saints. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot here. I don't think we were planning on this, but I'm curious. Who are your favorite saints? And let me phrase it this way. Suppose that you could be on a desert island with three saints <laughs> who were tasked with raising you to holiness. What three saints do you think would best be equipped to lead Father Blake Britton to heaven? My goodness, great question. I would say St. Augustine, number one. He's very formative in my spirituality and in my theologic. What I mean by that is like the way that I think, the way that I do theology is very Augustinian, mainly because Augustine begins all theology from his encounter with Christ. So theology, according to Augustine, is not something outside of yourself that you bring in. It's something that you suffer within yourself. It's something that you encounter within yourself because the truth is within you through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what baptism does. And so he's just very experiential in his theology, and this is what allows him to speak with such freedom and authority and also to contribute to theology. So definitely St. Augustine, and we'd have some splendid conversations, I'm sure. I would also love St. Catherine of Siena. She's very formative as well, especially in my spirituality, uh, one of the great mystics of Catholicism. And finally, and this is, I hate that I can only meet with three. <laughs> 
I would want to meet with a whole bunch. Um, I would have to say Fulton J. Sheen um, or one of the Florida Martyrs. Some of the some of the Florida right, Martyrs. I, you just expanded it from like three to seventy three <laughs> or however many Florida Martyrs there are, right? So you know, I'd, I'd find a way to cheat on that question, but uh, but yeah, that's what I would say. How about for you? Oh, I wasn't expecting you to flip it back around. Um, <laughs> let me think. I'd probably say Thomas Aquinas. He's yeah. kind of my touchstone, especially on faith and reason. And I think you'd have the added advantage of being on a desert island with Thomas. You would never exhaust things to talk about. You would always have a million subjects approached from a million different angles. Um, yeah, at one point you might try to get off the island. <laughs> <laughs> Said Contra, you can't get off the island. <laughs> Yeah. Um, who else would be? For me, probably Therese of Lisieux. Um, I'm not sure if I told you this, but when I was um, 24, I just turned 24 and decided I wanted to spend the whole year coming to know and, and befriend a saint that I hadn't known before. And I can't remember how it happened, but I got connected to Therese and Pierre Giorgio Frassati both at the same time. And it was only like a few weeks after I had started this by praying to them, reading books about them that I discovered they both died when they were 24. And then I've come to learn, um, our, our good friend Claire, who I know listens to this podcast, has a good blog post of other saints who died when they were 24. There's like a whole number of saints who died for some strange reason at this age of 24. Um, we broke the threshold, Brandon. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. We'll have to find another way to sainthood now. I keep thinking, I missed that list. Maybe like saints who died at age 72 or something like that. or I don't know. No, but those those would be my two, Therese and Pierre Giorgio. Therese for the spirituality of the little way, um, which has been so influential on me. And I feel like if I'm stranded on a desert island, pretty much my only way to holiness is through small acts with great love. I'm not going to do any you know significant great things. But then probably Pier Giorgio too. Um, he, for me, really connected the church's social teaching with the church's spiritual teaching. So love for the poor and love yeah. for the Eucharist. He was, he's been a great bridge figure for me. Um, but if I could add some more, probably Chesterton, Fulton Sheen, Augustine, <laughs> uh, go down the list here. But um, I, well, what, Chesterton, at least he would bring a good supply of whiskey and cigars <laughs> to the desert <laughs> to island. The far, well, you remember he famously was asked if you could bring one book on a desert island, what book would it be? And he said something like, well, obviously, Longman's Guide to Shipbuilding, you know, which is the <laughs> best answer, I think. <laughs> no, but I uh, one thing. One thing that has also stuck out to me about the saints is growing up as an evangelical in the late 80s, early 90s, the phrase that was all the rage was WWJD. What would Jesus do? You know, everybody had a WWJD bracelet. You'd see that tag everywhere. Um, but I remember finding it troubling because what it forced you to do was to use your imagination and think, okay, what would this first century Jewish carpenter do if he was living in 21st century America working my job and with my family, my contacts. And that's a little difficult to do without just projecting your own assumptions. You know, I, I don't know how Jesus would act in this situation or that situation. I can take basic principles from the Gospels and try to apply them, but you're still left with a huge gap that your imagination needs to fill. But then when I became Catholic, that gap was filled in a lot by the saints because you start seeing, well, okay, here's what it looks like to be a saint who's in a married context or with children. Here's what it looks like to be a, a young man like Pier Giorgio, you know, study. He was studying to be an engineer like I was at the time. You know, he's he's got friends, he parties, he's living a fairly normal life. It's it's easier to, to imitate that 
than it is to just imagine what Jesus would do in those cir- circumstances. In some ways, it's like, yeah. that is what Jesus would do. If, if we've recognized these people as saints, it's an affirmation that these people are doing what Jesus would have done in their time and place. Yeah, not only what Jesus would have done, but what Jesus is doing. And that's the fundamental problem with the what would Jesus do movement, if you will, is that it presupposes that Christ is no longer in the world. But the way that Christ is in the world is through the church, primarily through the sacraments, but also through his saints. This is why in the ancient church, the number one form of art, in their opinion, was the saints. The saints themselves were icons. In Greek, that word ikos means a window into heaven, a a way to see the divine. The saints were the way in which Christ continued to be himself in the world, to share the beauty of his love, of his mercy, his justice, his peace. And that is how Jesus is still in our midst, is through the saints. And that is something really, really fascinating to see how Christ has continued to be in the world throughout so many moments in world history, in the lives of his saints, in a plethora of different contexts, from multiplicity of backgrounds, races, from every single different tribe and culture, and there's Jesus Christ preaching the gospel. It's pretty amazing. Hey, let's circle back around to the Incarnation and how the Incarnation is connected to our conception of saints. I find it interesting that when you look back before Christ, there weren't a lot of examples of Jewish people venerating statues of Moses or Aaron or David. When you look now, um, among Jewish communities, you see uh, a notable absence of statues celebrating great Jewish figures. And then when you look in the Islamic world, certainly you see no visual representations of Muhammad or any of the other prophets. But in Catholicism, you have this abundance of depictions of saints, statues yeah. and stained glass windows and medals and you know all sorts of things. What's different about Catholicism that makes this not only permissible, but uh, admirable. I'm laughing right now because yesterday evening I had this exact conversation with my younger brother, Jacob, who's quite a philosopher in his own right, and one of the seminarians from our diocese. The three of us had dinner together at Planet Hollywood in downtown Disney, (laughs) now called Disney Springs. I don't like that they changed the name. For those of us who are from Orlando, you'll know my pain. But uh, so we were having dinner there at Planet Hollywood and had this exact conversation about Jesus's incarnation, so God becoming man, introduces a new understanding of art in the world because by God becoming man, he affirms that the world is good and it's worth admiring. It's worth embodying. So now in Jesus, the flesh, tangibility becomes the new way of the divine communicating itself. To put that more simply, now the flesh, physical reality, is the way that God comes to meet us. He's the, is the way that he encounters us. Whereas in Judaism, and also in other Middle Eastern cultures, you had this notion of God being abstracted from reality. He was super transcendent. He was so highly above us that we couldn't even say his name. It was sinful to say his name without due respect and reverence. Whereas now we're told to say the name of Jesus. Anything that you ask in my name will be granted unto you. Ask the Father anything in my name and it will be done. Come unto me, takes the hand of Thomas and thrust it into his pierced side. He tells his apostles to touch his wounds, see that I'm not a ghost. So Christ affirming the goodness of created reality by becoming flesh is huge for the field of art. And this is what now gives the church the authority, gives the church the freedom to depict the divine and things of the world. And you see this, of course, birthed in its fullest degree in the medieval period when we start building these wonderful cathedrals and basilicas, the stained glass window in particular 
is a unique invention. Stained glass windows didn't exist before Christianity. Why do they come into existence in the Christian hermeneutic and the Christian paradigm? Because Christians had this theology of sainthood, knowing that the sun is constantly shining, which represents Christ. Light is constantly streaming into the world. And the glass represents the soul that captures and refractures the light in a spectrum of colors in order to preach the gospel in all of its many, many ways. That is sainthood. So yeah, the Incarnation is hugely, hugely influential just on Western civilization, our understanding of art as a whole. All right, let's pivot a little bit and move from talking about the theology of sainthood to perhaps the more pressing question, which is how do we become saints? How do we become like St. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine and Pier Giorgio and Therese and all of them, you and I kind of put our heads together and we came up with a, a four point list. And we don't mean this to be like linear by any sense of it. If you check these four boxes, you're pretty good to go. You're um, yeah, right, right, right. But I think they kind of trace the the journey or the path to, to holiness, to, to achieve sanctity. Um, so let's go through them. Step number one, encounter Jesus and the sacraments of the church, especially the sacraments of reconciliation and the Holy Eucharist. Yeah. Being a saint means to be forged. It means to be shaped, to be molded. It doesn't mean to be free of failure. It means to be redeemed from failure. And what you recognize in the beauty of the lives of the saints is their willingness to suffer their own humanity, their willingness to fully engage in the shortcomings, anxieties, and fears that surround them, not to try to escape them, not to let them overwhelm them, but rather to embrace them fully with a peaceful heart, to suffer with them, and to keep on trying to follow Jesus. They do this especially through the sacrament of reconciliation. Mother Teresa at one point in her life was going to reconciliation every day. And it's not because she was a horrific sinner or robbing banks in the nighttime. It was because she was really struggling with the darkness inside of her heart, that spiritual dark night of the soul that she speaks about in her journals. She was really suffering with her own doubts and failures, but the friction, the tension of this suffering and her continuing to go to that fount of reconciliation again and again, her willingness to get on her knees before Jesus and admit her frailty and her fears is what made her holy. And sometimes we try to become holy again in spite of ourselves. Mm -hmm. We cannot do that. We can only become holy in ourselves, through ourselves, with Christ redeeming our personality. So that's step number one. And I'm, I'm sure that you could add to that, Brandon, as far as your own experience with the sacrament of reconciliation. But at least for me, I go to reconciliation once a month. It is a staple in my spiritual life. And that is the place where I hold up the mirror to my own soul and say, Jesus, I am longing to become a saint. And here are the things that are keeping me from acquiring that. But I trust that even in this thing, you can help me grow in holiness. So I don't know how your own experience has been with reconciliation, but that's been my... Yeah, very similar. Um, it's one of the, it strikes me as one of the great paradoxes of Christianity that the closer you get to Christ, the more aware you are of your imperfections and sin sinfulness. It reminds me of uh, an analogy that Bishop Barron gave. He said, it's like, you know, when you're driving down the road, say at nighttime, and you can see pretty clearly through your windshield to what's in front of you. But then if there's a car approaching you from the other direction with its spotlights on and it shines directly on your windshield, suddenly you notice all the smudges, all the imperfections. The closer you get to the light, the more evident all of these imperfections become. And I've certainly seen that in my own life, that the deeper I go in prayer, the more I read the saints, the closer I stay to the sacraments, 
the more aware I am of my wretchedness, of my sinfulness. Um, I think people get that, they see that paradox and they, they avoid it because they yeah. want to think, well, the closer I get to Christ, the more obviously perfect I'll become. Mm-hmm. But you read the journals and the diaries and the writings of the saints, and it's just the opposite. You see people like Mother Teresa or St. Therese of Lisieux describing herself as the worst sinner ever. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's hard to believe she really thought that of herself until you realize, well, no, the, the closer she gets to the light, the more the light shines in every nook and cranny of your soul, revealing like even the deepest uh, undiscovered imperfections that nobody else would have seen. But now that you've seen them in light of Christ, you realize there's so much down there that needs to be healed. Um, An important point to make on that is that the saints do so, and you're absolutely right, Brandon, the saints do so not from a place of guilt and shame. They do so actually from a place of love. And of joy. And this is what distinguishes a saint's hyper consciousness versus a scrupulous person. So, scrupulosity approaches sinfulness from a negative standpoint. It, it approaches sinfulness and brokenness from the sense of self hatred and self degradation. Whereas the saints approach sinfulness and brokenness from a sense of self love and being recognized that they are beloved by the Father no matter what. And this notion of being close to the light, to the warmth of the sun knowing that no matter what happens, the Lord loves me. This is what inspires them to actually rid themselves of sin. So you see how from one direction it's approaching it from this negative standpoint, and therefore it becomes something that's a drudgery. You actually do not enjoy going to confession. You don't enjoy doing an examination of conscience. Your life becomes overly anxious and stressful. Whereas for the saints, it was the complete opposite. They loved going to confession, not because they went with guilt and shame, but because they were so excited to find a way to get closer to Christ and the gift of recognizing things in their hearts that were keeping them from him. So it always comes from a place of freedom and joy. And going from that, of course, to the great sacrament of all sacraments, the Holy Eucharist, this is the beginning of holiness, as the Second Vatican Council says, the source and summit of our faith. Every single saint, without exception, going back to the ancient church, starting with St. Paul himself, says that the Eucharist is the source of all holiness. It's not the bread that we share sharing in the body of Christ, not the cup that we share sharing in the blood of Christ Jesus the Lord. Dedicate yourselves to Holy Eucharist. St. Paul will speak about this over and over and over again. And of course, the ancient church fathers pick up the same theme. We cannot become saints without a deep Eucharistic devotion because we cannot become saints without he who is the source of holiness. All right, so we're walking down the paths of how to become a saint. Step one was to encounter Jesus and the sacraments of the church, especially the sacraments of reconciliation and the Holy Eucharist. Step two is through prayer to require a deeper self-knowledge, to know yourself better. This reminds me, uh, Father Blake, of Gaudium et Spes 22, John Paul Mm -hmm. II's famous line that he contributed to the council, which was that in Christ, uh, Christ reveals man fully to himself. That the closer you get to Christ, it's not just that you're knowing Christ better, you're knowing yourself better, who you are and who you were created to be. Yeah. I'd be interested for you to share, Brandon, how in spiritual direction, you coming to more deeply understand who you are and your own gifts and talents and recognize how important that is to your holiness inspired you or helped free your spirituality or helped direct your spirituality. Um, let me th- <laughs> I need more guidance than that. You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> well, what I would say is this, that there's this tendency again within us to try to almost erase ourselves 
or to get rid of ourselves in order to become holy. I'll give an example from married life. So I hear the confessions and I do a spiritual direction with a lot of married couples. And sometimes they'll say, well, if only my husband would let me pray more. If only my children didn't need as much as my attention. And if only my job wasn't so demanding, then I could become a saint. So you see in that kind of mentality how they're seeing what's in front of them, their reality is an obstacle. If only I didn't have this kind of personality, if only I didn't have these kind of tendencies, then I could become a saint. So you see they're trying to rid themselves of the reality of who they are as opposed to embracing the reality in front of them. And so I know, for example, my own life, to answer the question that I just asked, it was really liberating for me in my own spiritual direction when I found out that I become a saint by really embracing the beauty of who I am and that Christ has called me, he's called me, Blake, with all of his gifts and talents, with all of his baggage and struggles, and none of those things are obstacles to my holiness, the complete opposite. If I give them to Jesus, they're the way to holiness. So that's what I meant when I like asked you that question. I was curious to see, because especially for the things that you do with Word on Fire and all these other wonderful ministries that you have, how has coming to that realization really hmm. it imbued and inspired your life as a husband, as a father, and as an evangelist? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that gives me more clarity. I, I think um, something that you and I have talked about a lot is taking account of the context God's put you in. So not just vocationally, like with me, I'm a husband and a father, you're a priest, but also more specifically and concretely, you know, I work at Word on Fire, which pretty much puts me right in the thick of the online world, a lot of which I've grown increasingly distasteful about, you know? And so I, I know I've talked to you many times saying like, oh, it, it would be so much easier to achieve holiness if I could just unplug my computer and get off the internet and live in a hermitage somewhere. Um, but you've often reminded me, no, but this is where God's put you. This is this is the means, the channel by which you're to become a saint. You know, there's there hasn't been a, a saint of the internet. Well, up until our good friend, uh, blessed Carlo yes. Acutis, who we've mentioned a, a couple times on this episode now, um, he was the first, but hopefully there'll be many more, that God's put you into this world not because it's easy, but because this is where he wants you to become a saint. Yeah, and that's such, a, again, a freeing recognition to have. It reminds me of a story from Rabbi Nausner, who's a really great, just one of the great Jewish theologians of the 20th century. He was an inspiration, actually, to Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Benedict references him multiple times in his series on Jesus of Nazareth. But Rabbi Nelsoner says, when you die, God's not going to ask you why you weren't Moses. God's going to ask you why you weren't yourself. And I can say the same thing for all of us. When I die, God's not going to ask me, why weren't you like St. Augustine? Why weren't you like Pope Benedict XVI? He's going to ask me, why weren't you who I created you to be? Why weren't you yourself? Did you not realize who I made you to be, all the gifts and talents that I wanted to realize inside of you? And that's a, a wonderful way for, for my own heart to live my priesthood. There's a game that I play sometimes with other priests. Again, it may sound a little bit like a morbid game, but it's actually, it's, it's funny and only Catholics would maybe get it. But when I'm with other priests or just other really on fire lay people, I'll ask them, you know, when you die, if you become incorruptible, what would you like to be incorrupt? What part of your body? Because the part of the saint's body that's incorrupt is the part that like really actualized their holiness, you know? So for example, St. Anthony of Padua, his tongue is incorrupt because he was such an amazing preacher. St. John Vianney, his heart was incorrupt because he had the heart of Jesus as a holy diocesan priest. Now, of course, I always say I'm the kind of guy like St. Teresa, so I want it all. So I want my whole body incorrupt, right? I don't know if I just want to go for a piece of it. But I've said, you know, 
I would I think my tongue or my heart like Anthony or John Vianney like I want to be known as one who preached the gospel with clarity with eloquence with love devotion zeal passion or as one that loved with the heart of Jesus. Um, but that's sort of a, maybe a funny way to, to, for us to reflect again. What is unique in your own vocation of holiness? Would you like your hand to be that which is preserved from corruptibility because you used it to serve the poor and to help the broken? Your feet because you walked to all the ends of the earth to, pro- to proclaim the gospel. So those are just little, little unique ways to focus on how we could attain holiness in a personal level. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to say, I want my fingers to be incorrupt so they could say, that man sanctified the world of video games because he spent so many hours playing video games. Look, his thumbs are still in the position of that one combo. X, X, square, square, up, up. That Street Fighter Four combo. Oh, man. All right, let's keep moving. So that was step two, was that through prayer, you acquire better self-knowledge of who Christ created you to be and the type of saint that he wants you to be. Step three is to recognize your weaknesses and areas for growth. And when you and I discussed this before the podcast, we love to follow that pattern from the, I always mispronounce the Latin, but it's the formational document for priests where they identify those four areas of formation, spiritual, human, intellectual, pastoral, that in those four dimensions, we all need to recognize in those areas, uh, places of weakness, and opportunities for growth. So maybe say something about each one of those areas. This would go back to our podcast on spiritual woundedness in particular. So I'd encourage all of our listeners to listen or view that podcast because it's going to elaborate a lot more deeply on the point that I'm about to make. But in order for us to grow in holiness, we have to have this deep understanding of where we need to grow, of where we need to be better formed by Christ. And again, not to do so with a self-degrading spirit, not to do so with a hypercritical spirit or a scrupulous spirit, but to do so with an authenticity, recognizing that we are called to holiness and sainthood and Jesus wants to heal these things. And going off of Pastorus Dabovobis, which is the document St. John Paul II composed for seminary formation, I understand this in spiritual growth, human growth, intellectual growth, and pastoral growth. Spiritually, where are the areas that I need to deepen in the spirit of prayer and contemplation? This is the foundation of all holiness, to meet Jesus in prayer. Humanly, where do I need to increase in the virtues of my own human knowledge? Do I need to become more enculturated? Do I need to have better manners, better etiquette? How's my physical health? How do I present myself to others? Hygiene. Believe it or not, all these things do contribute to holiness, how we take care of our body, how we live out our humanity, how we understand culture, speaking multiple languages, knowing about symphonies and operas, understanding how different people do different things. That's all part of becoming a saint because saints are very worldly people in the end. Worldly, not in the sense of sinful, but worldly in the sense that they are fully immersed in the world. They love the world around them and they embrace it entirely. When it comes to the intellectual formation, where do I need to grow in my understanding of the faith and my knowledge? Catholics love the truth. Where do I need to grow in my understanding of the catechism, the writings of the church fathers, and the sacraments of the church, and the Ten Commandments, but also even in mathematics, sciences, astrophysics, medicine, these cool little side topics that we like to research. And finally, in the pastoral component, how am I called to put into practice the spiritual, human, and intellectual aspects of my formation? How am I called to share now with the church and the wider world these gifts that I have particularized? Yeah, so lots of great questions for discernment. I'm just looking over them. I realized that in my life, I've asked a lot of these questions of the Lord just privately in prayer. And 
and looking for his promptings and his voice answering some of these questions. But I've also looked to the saints themselves. It's kind of like this snowball effect that the more you follow the saints, the more answers they'll give you in these four areas to help you to become more of a saint. And then that will inspire other saints. So it's like the saints themselves generate more saints by providing answers to these questions. And that leads directly to step number four. (laughs) And the last step of how to become a saint is get to know the saints. As a parish priest, I've been amazed at how appreciative the people of God are on the Feast of Saints for me to actually give a homily on the saints. First of all, the fact that I celebrate the Day of the Saint, because in a lot of parishes, unfortunately, especially on optional memorials, the priest won't celebrate them. And there might be good reason for that, so I don't want to be critical. But I think overall, it's very beneficial for the people of God if we celebrate the saints in the sacred liturgy, because then they get a sense of the rhythm of the church, but also the lives of these saints. So I love teaching about the saints, and I'm amazed at how few Catholics actually know the lives of saints, especially those who aren't the big saints, like Peter and Paul, the Twelve Apostles, or John Vianney or Augustine, but some of these other saints. Getting to know the saints is the best way to start learning how to become a saint. You know, iron sharpens iron. And so for me, when I was a little boy, I used to love reading the lives of the saints. And I still do now as a grown man. I read the lives of the saints all the time. They're just fascinating to me. And so getting to know saints, I think, is really, really important. You know, I once had some advice, again, from Bishop Barron. This was several years ago. He recommended that um, during Lent, you aim to befriend two saints. And it's not uncommon for people to say, I'm going to you know, read a saint biography during Lent or whatever. So the innovative twist he added, though, was find a saint that's really similar to you, that's really like you. So, you know, a lot of our listeners here are millennials. Maybe this upcoming Advent or this upcoming Lent, you dive more into our new blessed Carlo Acutis and learn more about him and his life and what you can imitate from him being in a similar context. But then the twist, he said, find a saint who's completely different than you in temperament and lifestyle. If you're a priest, find a layperson. If you're a layperson, find a priest. If you're someone who likes, you know, the intellectual life, find somebody who just wasn't intellectual and had none of those gifts. You know, find someone who's diametrically opposite from you and then get to know them and befriend them and have them help to fill in the gaps of your own life, these places where the two of you maybe diverge. So I've always appreciated that, and I've, I've tried to do that each Lent. I've tried to grab a couple saint biographies, one of a saint I'm immediately drawn to because they're similar, and then one that's just way out in left field that I would thought I would never have a connection with this saint. And it's really cool when you read through the life of a saint and you do realize similarities in your personality. It's a fascinating experience. I've had it a couple of times, for example, like with Fulton J. Sheen, reading some of his thoughts on the priesthood and his daily life as a parish priest. I'm like, wow, that's that's actually, I felt that before. I, I know what that's like. Um, or reading the life of Blessed Pier Giorgio when he talks about hanging out with his friends and how much joy he has. I was like, oh my gosh, that's, what I, that's how I feel when I leave Brandon's house. You know, I know what that feels like. So there, when you read the lives of the saints and you find similarities, it's super inspiring for you because it tells you, again, that you can become a saint. You can become a saint. And I would encourage you to have some favorite saints that you carry around in your hip pocket that you just pull out for reference on a regular basis. So as you can tell, Fulton J. Sheen is one of mine. Thankfully, I have a third-class relic of his, or second-class, excuse me, which is a piece of his cloak. And I pull that out every time I'm writing a homily. He's right there with me, and he helps me write my homilies because he was such a great preacher. I also have a first-class relic, a piece of the body of St. John Vianney, which I carry with me into the confessional. 
And so when I'm hearing confessions, I hold him close. He was a great confessor of souls, and there's a benefit there. So having saints that you could just sort of carry around with you, maybe physically if you have a, some form of relic, but definitely spiritually if you could carry them in your heart and soul that you could just turn to on a regular basis, say, okay, St. John Vianney, this person's coming to the confessional and they don't look happy. Or, you know, I have this, I have this pastoral counseling meeting as someone who's mad at me because I changed one of the hymns this Sunday at Mass. Give me the patience and the pastoral love that you had to deal with them as a good shepherd. All right. I think we'll put a bow on it there. Um, we'd love to hear your comments. What, I, what I'd be especially interested in is tell us who your favorite saints are. So maybe yeah, go to yeah. BurroughshirePodcast.com, find this episode, and then leave a comment telling us who your favorite saint is, what maybe they've taught you, and why others should check them out as well. Um, Father Blake and I will be in the comment boxes trying to answer comments whenever we can. Um, but until then, we'll see you guys in about one month. Again, a uh, slight twist in the release schedule. We're going to do these podcasts once a month now instead of every other week. We'll see how it goes. Um, so thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you guys next time on the Burroughshire Podcast. Shire Podcast.